So do you trust God? I mean, think about it for a second. Do you really trust God? I mean, it's easy for us to talk about how much we trust God. But I think trusting God can be a really difficult thing to do. And I think a lot of people would say, yes, I trust God. But then their behavior oftentimes reveals something else. I think before we even answer the question, if I trust God or not, I have to define what we mean by trusting God. So I might say I trust him, but, but what do I trust him with? I don't actually trust God to make my life easier. Now, don't get me wrong. If God promised that he would make my life easier, I would trust him with that. But he actually promised that when I follow him, my life will become more difficult. So if you're trusting God to have an easy life, you're going to be let down. So I guess it's not so much, do you trust God, but what are you trusting God with? So I think the first thing we need to do is define what do we trust God with in our lives. And then we can ask, are you really trusting God? And that's what we will talk about today as we continue our series, Summer in the Psalms. Uh, We've moved on to Psalm 108. So open up your Bible with me, if you will. Turn to Psalm 108, and we'll read through it, and then we'll dig in. A song, a psalm, of, a psalm of David. My heart is steadfast, O God. I will sing and make melody with all my being. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great above the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth that your beloved ones may be delivered. Give salvation by your right hand and answer me. God has promised in his holiness with exultation, I will divide up Shechem and portion out the valley of Sukkoth. Gilead is mine, Manasseh is mine, Ephraim is my helmet, Judah is my scepter, Moab is my wash basin. Upon Edom I cast my shoe, over Philistia I shout in triumph. Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? Have you not rejected us, O God? You do not go out, O God, with our armies. O grant us help against the foe, for vain is the salvation of man. With God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. So let's jump into this. It begins with a heading, a song, a psalm of David. So this is the first heading that we've found since Psalm 103. Now, the headings typically come with the Psalms, but maybe we should do like a brief overview of the Psalms really quickly, just so we can kind of understand them a little bit more. Uh, The word Psalm simply means a song or a poem set to music. So the Psalms are a a collection of poems or songs that were collected, or I should say written over a period of 900 years and were collected and then Uh, edited or or put together, so compiled together. Now, the compilation of the Psalms, we don't actually know when it was finalized, but we do know that it was finalized sometime before Christ. So, from 500 A.D. 
to around 0 AD. That's 500 years if you're doing the math. Uh, that, was, uh, that was the time period in which it was compiled, when the compilation was finalized. We don't actually know when that was finalized, but we, we know that was somewhere within that 500-year time frame, right? But we, do know, but we also know that all of these were written, and then there was an editor that came by, and they compiled them into five different books, and they kind of gave it some organization, now, there's a lot of debate about the organization of Psalms. We won't get into that, but, but we know that, they, that whoever finalized this compilation had some organization to it. So in the Hebrew, the headings are actually a part of the verses. So verse 1 would be the heading. But in the English, we have the heading, and then we start the verses. So we see that the heading is not actually a part of verse 1, but we know that the heading uh, has some type of first-person knowledge. So we know that the headings were at least very close to the original, right? The the headings had to have come with the psalm because they came with the first-person knowledge of the psalm. And it's usually some type of like musical instruction or it's uh, dictating who the author is. All right, so that's the heading. So we could think of the Psalms as kind of like a hymn book for ancient Israel. Usually they would gather together and they would use the Psalms along with their headings and the the musical uh, notations that come with the headings to direct them in worship and praise. So most scholars believe that Psalm 108 was compiled after the exile period, although there's actually no way of knowing when it was compiled. But that does beg the question, how could it be a psalm of David? We see here, a song, a psalm of David. And if you know your history of Israel, David comes way before the exile period. So if it was a psalm compiled during the exile period, how could it be a psalm of David? And the answer is, whoever compiled this psalm actually took sections of Psalm 57 and Psalm 60, which were written by David. So we've got... Psalm 57, a section of Psalm 57, and a section of Psalm 60. They compiled it together to put together a whole new psalm. Now, both Psalm 56 and Psalm 60, sorry, Psalm 57 and Psalm 60, begin with laments, asking if God has forgotten David. Then he transitions into expressions of confidence in God's character. So David, in both these sections, David is experiencing some place where he's questioning whether or not he actually trusts God. He's questioning, God, are you really truly here? Do you see the situation I am in? This is a bad situation. And then he expresses a confidence like, yes, I understand that this is a bad situation, but I still can express confidence in you, God. I still trust you even if my feelings are deceiving me right now. But both sections of Psalm 108 begin with an expression of confidence in God's character and then follow it up with a plea based on God's character. So it takes those sections of confidence that that David had placed in God and then says, based on this confidence, I can make this plea. So when we begin to feel disconnected with God, we can remind ourselves of his character. I think that's one of the main themes or main points of this psalm. This psalm is broken down into two sections, verses 1 through 6. That's going to be a quote uh, or a connection, a compilation from Psalm 57. And then again, 
7 through 13 will be from Psalm 60. So the big theme then is when you feel like God isn't around, like he might be letting you down, then we need to turn back to the Bible and study his character. And as we study his character, we regain our confidence in who God is. And we regain our confidence that we can trust God. When you begin to question if he even exists, you can go back through scripture and remind yourself of his character and what he has said. When you feel like the world is lost, and we might as well just call it quits, remind yourself of his character. So I think that's the big theme that we're going to grab from this. So then let's dig in. We've got the heading, My heart is steadfast, O God. I will sing and make melody with all my being. So steadfast here is to be marked by determination or to be resolute. And the heart represents the person's locus of control or your inner self, the part that makes decisions. So what this person, what this psalmist is determined or resolute to do is to sing and make melody. Not just for the sake of singing, but specifically to praise God. I'm going to invite Larry to come on up, and while he's coming up, I'll talk some more. So he is resolute to sing and make melody, not just for the sake of singing, but specifically to praise God, to glorify God. The term, with all my being, corresponds with my heart is steadfast. So his inner being, his locus of control, and his, uh, with all my being, they're kind of together and they're bracketing this idea of, I am resolute, I am determined that I will praise God. And that's the point that it's going to emphasize with that bracketing. The psalmist is set on praising God. Just how resolute is he on praising God? Well, awake, O harp and lyre, I will awake the dawn. So the psalmist is so eager to praise God that he's going to awake the dawn. Now, if you remember, in those days, there was no alarm clock. You and I can wake up before dawn because we have alarm clocks. I set my alarm clock this morning. Well, it's, the sunrise is so early, it doesn't matter. But, but during the winter, I wake up before the dawn on a consistent basis because I have an alarm clock. In those days, the dawn was the alarm clock. But here he's saying, hey, I'm going to wake up so early, I'm so excited to praise God that I'm actually going to be the one to wake up the dawn. It kind of reminds me of Christmas morning with kids. You know, your kid is so eager to open their present that they wake up early and they come pounding on your door. It became such an issue in my house that my wife and I decided that we were going to make up a rule. The last kid out of bed is the first that gets to open their present. Parents, you will sleep in on Christmas morning if you make that rule. Until they figured out that they would just combine forces and they made a deal that they rotate every year and now they still wake up really early and it's still but but that's the type of excitement that this guy has imagine if the church gathered together on a sunday morning with that with a childlike a child on christmas like excitement to praise god so why do we struggle with getting excited now, i've heard some people say that it's the music that Christian music is stale, it's boring, it has no creativity, and I don't think that is it. 
I think we struggle with praising God because we forget who He is and who we are. So instead of being excited to praise God for who He is, we kind of get hooked on an emotional experience. And we start to think that this emotional experience is what excites us. Because a lot of us have had emotional experiences during worship. And then we start to think that that's what worship is all about. That, that somehow getting my emotions stirred up should be what worship is. And that a truly great worship experience is one that is emotional. I think that's wrong. Now, don't get me wrong, as we study God's character, it should make us emotional, right? Praising God can be an emotional experience. It should be stirring our emotions when we recognize who God is and who we are, and that we get to worship the Creator of the universe. So praising God should stir emotion as we meditate on who He is and who we are and what He has done. This should stir us to praise God. Meditating on who He is. Not the emotional experience of worship. That is not what stirs us to emotion. But as we meditate on who He is, that should be stirring our emotion. But I think the reason why people struggle with being excited to praise God is because oftentimes they forget who He is and who we are. So not only does He wake up the dawn, but He also wakes up the instruments. Here the psalmist mentions two different instruments, but throughout the psalms we see calls for many different instruments to be used in praise. Even praise God with clashing and blasting cymbals. And I think that shows us that it's okay and even desired to use different instruments in praise. That we can use different instruments as we praise God. And it's okay to have upbeat songs as well as more reflective songs. God is a creative God, and He created us in His image. So it's okay for us to get creative in ways that we praise Him. And then he goes on to say, I will give thanks to you, O God, or sorry, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. So here we have this theme that kind of correlates with last week, this theme of thanksgiving and confession. Part of praising God is to testify or confess all that God has done. To tell of God how God has rescued us and changed us. And here we actually get, I think, a couple different ideas. So we've got some ideas about instrumentation. We've got some ideas about audiences. And that's what I want to actually talk to Larry about. uh, Because we see that he's going to give thanks among the peoples, that he's going to praise among the nations. And so he labels some audiences. So I want to ask, Larry, what is the object of praise? And what, what does that even mean? So my personal belief is that the object of praise is God. Christ, the triune God. Uh, that's what we come here to do, is to praise Him, to worship Him. Uh, this is a w- emphasis on a one-way relationship this way. Now, it's a little bit of a mind teaser in that we've discussed this thing called corporate worship. And that's where I think some of these ideas about the emotional part 
comes into play. And uh, I don't know that I support that a lot. The mind teaser is, as we've been reminded by Pastor Aaron, that we are each a unique masterpiece of God's. Well, that right there sets the basis for me to worship God for who he is and who I am. He's made me a unique masterpiece. I can praise him for that. Not to sound harsh, I don't need any of you to do that, right? This is me and him. So my invitation to folks in a congregation of a whole lot of people are to come and work this relationship, you and God. Yeah, we're doing it together, but it's a very individual thing that I hope you've prepared your heart to do when you come here, okay? I can't make anybody in a congregation worship. You guys have to do that yourselves. What I can do, and I take a bit of a clue from the Psalms, Look in your Bible sometime and read, and depending on which version it is, you'll see a heading at some psalms that say, to the chief musician, to the chief musician, to the choir director. Many, many psalms were compiled to whoever it is that's going to lead worship, and their job is simply to direct. The strings, the cymbals, whatever instruments are used, and the voices. We get together to do it. It would be chaotic if we were all singing a different song at the same time or the wrong place in the song. So there's a role for someone to direct, and that's kind of what I believe I do, is simply direct, hey, at this point we're going to come in, we're going to sing together. We're singing together, and we get the benefit of hearing other people praise it's like this right for this morning. This is our nation, right? This is our congregation of people. We're here to praise and worship. And we get to hear each other do that, but we can't be taken out of the mode of who's the object of my worship? It's him. And so I, I encourage people to have that time when we're here together just simply to think this direction. And some of the songs we try to sing are focused on who God is, his creation, what he's done, how we make our way through life here, walking with him here, uh, and looking forward to when we're there. So that's quite a mixture of things we can think about and sing about, all reasons to give him praise. All right. Well, I'm glad that uh, you don't need me to pray. <laughs> In fact, I can be that distraction. But, but I love having you. Offbeat and tone deaf doesn't, <laughs> doesn't help you out much, no, does no. it? <laughs> but, uh, so that's okay. the object. So God is the object. God is now, the what object. about the audience? Who's the audience? Well, again, the Psalms, are, the Psalms, as an example, are written to the choir director or the chief musician for the benefit of directing slash, we use the term leader today, the worship leader. What does that even mean? I'm directing some music so that we can all get together while we're doing this. But the congregation, or who's it written to, uh, it's the audience that's there at that time. Okay, I think of the night of the Passover supper. One of, that pa one of those passages ends with, and when they were finished, they sang a song and went out into the night. Well, they were the congregation. They were the audience that night to be singing that song. So it's whoever's together at this point in time, uh, it's us, is, is the congregation. Now, 
there's how many of us are replicated all over the place at any given time. Mm-hmm. So there's multiple congregations that are going on. Collectively, we'll all be up in heaven someday in one place, and there'll be one. And we'll all be singing together with God knows how many people. I don't. Mm-hmm. But it's going to be awesome, right? It's going to be awesome. So that so God's the object. God's the object. Us we gathered together are the audience. Are the audience. What's the purpose? The purpose is to follow the instruction from the word and to give him praise from a heart that he has saved, he's sanctified, he's growing. If we're doing the right things in our Christian walk, we're growing in Christ. And uh, that's why we do it, is to praise him for his work in our lives. His work that he already created the earth, put us on it, brought us to himself. Now we get to praise him. All right. Well, thank you. That's all the time I'll take from you. Someone moved my clock, so I can't. (laughs) So I can't see what time it is. Well, it says it's it's a quarter after two. A a quarter after two. Wow, we went really late. (laughs) All right. Well, I'll just keep you longer then. Uh, But thank you so much, Larry, for describing that for me. So one of the things that I get as he describes that, and I really like some of his philosophy. I mean, he's, he's been doing, he's been leading or directing worship longer than I've been alive. So he's developed some, a few philosophies, which it's helpful for me to glean from. But one of the things that I really like and how I, I kind of put it together is that when we gather together on a Sunday, the object of our worship is God, the audience is one another, and so one of the purposes that we have is to encourage one another to grow in the grace of God. That helps us design worship differently than, let's say, uh, a church that might call themselves seeker-friendly. So a seeker-friendly is to invite non-believers in and develop a worship style that might be appealing to them. Now, I don't, want, I don't want to bash anyone else, but that's not what we've decided as a church that we, that we think Scripture has called us to. So when we think through time in praise, we're not thinking through how can we reach non-believers with our praise time. We're thinking through how can we encourage one another to stay focused on God and to grow in His grace as we gather together? So that helps dictate what our Sunday morning is going to look like. And we hope that it can be an encouragement to you. But I also think as I read through the Psalms, I think that's the, bib- the more biblical way to do it. So that's why we try to do what we're doing. So he's eager to praise. We see that they use different instrumentations in praise, that he's eager to praise, and he's going to wake up that instrumentation, and then he's going to give this praise among the congregation. And as they sing this praise, as they're excited to sing this praise among the congregation, it actually encourages the congregation to continue to grow in their, in their trust and in their maturing and in their direction towards God. And then he continues... For your steadfast love is great above the heavens, your faithfulness reaches the clouds. So this is the reason why he praises. Because God's love is great above the clouds. Now last week we talked a little bit about this Hebrew term for for love. And it's not like a flaky, wishy-washy love. It is a do-what-is-right-for-the-other-person-all-the-time type of love. So God is always doing what is right. And sometimes we have a hard time with this, especially when we're in the Old Testament. 
I hear people all the time see see some of what God did in the Old Testament and think, was that right? Especially concerning the conquest. In the book of Joshua, when the Israelites come in and they take over the land. And we question, was that okay? They just displaced whole people groups. Killed off whole people groups. Was that right? That God commanded that? And I would say when, we, when all is said and done, and we fully understand the situation, we will see that what God did was right. But for now, we can look at some of the evidence and we can make some arguments, but we also have to trust that what God did was right. That his knowledge is greater than our knowledge, and that when we have all the facts we will know that what he did was right. Some might ask, well, what about hell? Even creating hell seems like it's not a loving thing to do, right? Can a steadfast, loving God, always doing what is right for the other type of love, God create a hell? And I've heard a lot of human, more loving alternatives. Like, how about just let everyone into heaven? And I don't think letting everyone into heaven is actually doing what is right. And I I think it's based on this false idea of what heaven is. Because a lot of people think heaven is just going to be getting whatever you want whenever you want. And I actually think that that is more of a version of hell than heaven. So C.S. Lewis writes in The Great Divorce, a a phenomenal book. If you've never read The Great Divorce, I highly recommend reading it. But he he, uh, actually writes it to kind of show how people end up rejecting heaven. How people would rather choose hell over heaven. Because everyone thinks, why on earth would you choose hell over heaven? So he kind of paints this picture of hell being a place where you can get whatever you want whenever you want it. And so it's this huge city that's absolutely empty. Because anytime someone makes you mad, you just get a new house. And so it's this huge city that's empty, because everybody has moved miles and miles and miles away from anyone else. And then he paints this picture of how these people might get the second chance to go to heaven. Now, keep in mind, he's not throwing out a theology of second chances. What he's doing is trying to paint a picture of why people would reject heaven. And so they're at this bus stop, and they start taking this bus up to heaven, and they get to heaven... And he follows all these different characters around in heaven. And one by one, they reject heaven to go back to hell. And every single one of them has a different reason. But all of it comes down to heaven isn't what they thought it would be. They thought they could get whatever they wanted, their heart's desire. And what heaven really is, is having a full relationship with God. So if heaven is having this relationship, this perfect relationship with your maker, and you don't want to have a perfect relationship with your maker, in fact, you're still living in rebellion trying to be God yourself, then you don't actually want heaven. You don't want to have that perfectly restored relationship with your maker and your God 
and your authority because you're still trying to be your own God. You're still trying to be your own authority. So forcing that relationship on somebody is not loving. So a God that would force himself on others is not a loving God. Instead, God gives them the alternative. And that is separation from him. So the psalmist praises God because he is loving and faithful. Faithfulness means trustworthy and reliable. God is trustworthy and he is reliable. To me, the greatest example of how trustworthy and reliable he is is that he provided salvation for us all. That everyone that wants to be fully restored to have that perfect relationship with their creator can have it again. You don't have to worry if you've been good enough you don't have to worry if your good outweighs your bad. He came and he paid the price for our sins so that we can be reconciled back to him. And that is the greatest display of his love and his faithfulness. So the psalmist is so sure of God's love and faithfulness, he describes it as otherworldly. When we look and we see him say that it's above the heavens and it reaches to the clouds, these are words that describe like an otherworldly type of love implying that the love that he has is bigger than the world, bigger than anything we can imagine. And next the psalmist will, will transition into the appeal. So based on this love that God has, he writes, Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. So based on how God is described in the previous verses, the psalmist appeals that God would be exalted, that his glory would be over all the earth. So this appeal recognizes that although God is the ruler, there are times when it feels like others have usurped God's authority. I think we all can feel that at times, right? We see injustice. We see the way some people mock God's moral law, and it seems as though they are getting away with it. And it can feel like, God, are you really ruling? I would also say that we try to usurp God's authority. And oftentimes we don't even realize we are doing it. When I sin, it reveals that I am trying to usurp God's authority. When I act out in anger, it reveals that I am trying to usurp God's authority. When I, when I refuse to forgive someone, what am I saying? Maybe not verbally, but through my actions... What am I saying is that I don't trust God to deal with this person accordingly. So I have to take the situation in my own hands. When I withhold forgiveness, I'm saying I don't trust you, God, so I'm going to take your place as judge. How about when you're stuck in fear? When you constantly have fear of things. When you're constantly afraid of what this world might bring. Constantly afraid that someone might die. Constantly afraid of sickness or death. What you're saying is that you don't really trust God. And I'm not even saying that that bad thing won't happen. 
you might have that fear for a very good reason. So, because my first wife died in a car accident, I was at, she was working a night shift, I was at home waiting for her, an hour goes by, not answering phone calls, another hour goes by, I decide I need to go look for her. Because of that situation, that she died in a car accident, anytime Jen is late, it's very easy for me to begin to have that fear. So sometimes our fears are very rational. But when we begin to let that fear control us, what we are saying is, God, even if this thing, this reality might happen, even this this very real fear might happen, I don't trust you to be good in that. So if I were then to say, Jen, based on this this rational fear that I have, because I've experienced the death of a spouse in a car accident, because I have experienced this, and I don't want to experience this again, I'm just going to drive you around everywhere you go. That would be letting that fear, that even rational fear, begin to control me, right? And it's saying, God, I don't trust you in the tragedy. I don't trust that you're good enough in the tragedy. So it's okay to have a very rational fear, but not to let that very rational fear begin to control you. And it reveals that you're not actually trusting God with that fear. So I can go to that place very quickly, and the way I have to deal with it, anytime she's late, and it is anytime she is late, it's not that I text her, it's not that I call her and say, hey, where are you? It's that I come back and I pray. And I have to come back to his word, and I have to remind myself of who he is, that even if tragedy strikes again, God can still comfort me in the midst of it. And God is still good through all of it. So we try to usurp God's power and authority all the time. So the psalmist saw the wicked uprising or usurping God's authority. So his appeal here is for God to rule. When he says, be exalted, O God, let your glory be over all the earth. He's saying, rule, use your authority, God. That's the appeal. And then he goes on, that your beloved ones may be delivered. Give salvation by your right hand and answer me. So the psalmist is asking that God would use his power to rescue those who he loves. The term beloved here signifies a special relationship. So the people are in trouble. It feels like God is just watching and the psalmist is appealing to God based on who he is as outlined in the previous verses for salvation to be rescued from the problem at hand. In the next section, the psalmist appeals not just to salvation based on God's character, but he also appeals to God's promises. Verse 7 begins with, God has promised in His holiness. So the word translated promise really means to speak. Most translations have it translated as God has spoken, and that is the more accurate translation. I think what the ESV is getting at is that when God speaks, it's as good as a promise. When he speaks, it will happen. That's what the ESV is getting at. I would prefer that God, the translation God has spoken. I just think it's more accurate. But that's okay. We can can still work with the ESV here. 
So God has, has promised in his holiness. In his holiness is a reference to his otherness. This is in contrast to humanity. So the idea is that in our sin we have become corrupted and we have become corruptible. We sin, we rebel, we mess up, and we miss the mark. We may make promises, but we can't always live up to our promises. Things pop up all the time. My kids call me out on this anytime it happens when I say, hey kids, we're going to go someplace. And then maybe their mom gets sick, and we can't go that place. And they say, but dad. And I say, you know what? I can't control all the circumstances. But God can. He is not fallible. He is infallible. So God is holy. He is incorruptible. He is infallible. He is unbroken and unbreakable. He does not fail. He does not make mistakes. He can and does live up to his promises. So the psalmist is just reminding us that God is holy and has spoken. So what did God say? With exaltation, I will divide up Shechem and portion out the valley of Sukkoth. Gilead is mine, Manasseh is mine, Ephraim is my helmet, Judah is my scepter, Moab is my waspation. Upon Edom I cast my shoe, over Philistia I shout in triumph. So this idea of dividing up Shechem and portioning out Sukkoth is a way of describing the land God would give Israel. We talked about this a little bit before in the, in the idea of the conquest, but we'll get a little bit more in detail because some, this is another one of those accusations people have against God not doing what is right. He gave the land to Israel. So God promises Abraham this land. And as he gives him this promise, he says, in 400 years, I will give this land to your offspring. So why does he wait 400 years? Well, he tells Abraham because he's giving the people the land, giving the Canaanites who are living in the land 400 years to repent. Think about that number for a second. God is giving the Canaanites 400 years to repent. That's older than our nation. It's not like he just willy-nilly promised Abraham this land and then went and wiped out whole people groups to give him the land. He promises him this land and he says, but I can't give it to you yet because I'm going to give this people, these people that are in absolute rebellion towards God. And that's another thing is people don't actually realize oftentimes what the Canaanites were doing. Temple prostitution was a huge thing. But beyond temple prostitution, child sacrifice. When they did the Jericho, when they uh, were doing the dig, the archaeologists were doing a dig in Jericho, they found in the center of Jericho the place where they offered child sacrifice. And they found tens of thousands of babies from one city sacrificed up to Molech. The Canaanites all over that land. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. Sacrificing their children, engaging in temple prostitution. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. There are so many other sins that I don't even want to describe because we've got young people in the audience. 
So here they are, living in absolute and utter rebellion against God. And what does God say? I'm going to give them 400 years to repent. That is a loving, graceful, merciful God. I don't think any one of us would give people that long of a time. Most of us would, would see what was happening and say, just wipe them off the face of the earth. But isn't that one of the, uh, the arguments we constantly hear from people that don't believe in God, from atheists, they say, if God was real, why does he let sin happen? And then when we go back into the biblical evidence and we say, hey, look, there was a group of sinners, he wiped them off the face of the earth, then they say, why is God so mean? Well, you can't have it both ways. He's either actively engaged in, and actively transforming this world, or he's just letting people get away with sin. But you can't have it both ways, right? And so I think we see from the biblical account that he is active, that he is involved. But this is the idea that he is going to give Israel, that he gave Israel, not that he's going to, but, but he promised Israel that he would give them this land. And then in verse 8, Gilead is mine, Manasseh is mine, Ephraim is my helmet, Judah is my scepter. And these are, this is language that talks about a ruler or a king. So Ephraim and Judah would represent God as king. And this goes back to the reason for God creating the nation of Israel to represent him to the world and to bring about salvation through Christ. This was ultimately fulfilled in Christ. Christ as the true king and ruler came through Israel. Then he describes Moab as my wash basin. Upon Edom I cast my shoe. Over Philistia I shout in triumph. The wash basins were, uh, was where a warrior would rinse off blood after a battle. Edom becomes the place a warrior would cast his shoe after battle. And Philistia would experience the warrior shouting in triumph after the battle. So God speaks out of his holiness that he will use Israel to reveal himself to the world and that God would be victorious after or over Israel's enemies. And Israel's enemies were those living in rebellion against God. The psalmist goes on to quote God, who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? So the question at hand that God is posing is that uh, he will, it's going to emphasize that he will make it happen, that God will make it happen. Not only did he declare it, but he took action to make it happen. And then this leads us to the appeal. Oh, grant us help against the foe, for vain is the salvation of man. This appeal is for God to grant them victory. According to God speaking out of holiness, God should be working for Israel. So why does it feel like he's not there? Why does it feel like they have been rejected? Why does it feel like he's not going with them? And I think the answer comes in verse 12. Oh, grant us help against the foe, for vain is the salvation of man. The appeal is for God to grant them victory. The second line gives us why there is an empty feeling even though God is there. The term vain is also translated as empty and was often associated with idols. So the idea coming out of verse 12 is that they have put their faith in idols. 
The idols that they put their faith in cannot help them and will leave them feeling helpless and empty. So why does God feel so far away? Because we have distanced ourselves from him by trusting in other things. So we find the solution in verse 13. With God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. The idea is that as we trust God, we will see he is true to his word. Sometimes we don't like his faithfulness to his word. Israel didn't like his faithfulness to his word when it came to the if-then section. If you are unfaithful to me, I will raise up another nation to wipe you out. If you're Israel, you don't like that faithfulness to his word. But he remained faithful to his word even when they didn't like it. God is going to remain faithful to his word even when we don't like it. As we trust his word, we will see the trustworthiness of his word. And that's the crux of this psalm. Israel trusted in idols. They worshipped other gods. They trusted in Egypt and in men, in governments and in ideologies. And the end result was emptiness. Because nothing can fulfill, nothing can save but God alone. So they felt emptiness and needed to look back and remind themselves of God's faithfulness. That he is true to his word. And as they did, they were encouraged. Are you struggling with emptiness? Are you struggling with finding hope in what seems like a hopeless world? Go back and look at how God has been faithful to his word. Remind yourself of the resurrection But don't stop there. Look at the church. With all of its flaws and failures, God has used it to spread his gospel and is still using it to spread his gospel. And it continues to this day to change lives and to free people from sin. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for your word. That you are faithful and true to it. That as we study your word, And as we trust in your word, we can see over and over again how your word is trustworthy. And we pray that we would give you thanks, that there would be an excitement to praise your name among the nation. That the object of our worship would always be you. And that we would encourage one another to continue to trust your word. Amen.